All right, welcome back to the show. We're continuing our Kauai series of episodes today with a conversation with Dustin Barca. My first exposure to Dustin Barca was in the early 2000s when he began appearing in surf magazines and videos as a professional surfer. He spent 2009 on the championship tour, where his best result was a fifth place finish in Brazil. He has since pursued a career as a mixed martial arts fighter for Bellator, where he currently holds a professional record of five wins and no losses. He has taken up the role as community activist, which evolved into a run for mayor in 2014. Dustin and I had a really long conversation to cover all of these topics, so I'm actually going to release it in two parts today, and then the second episode will go live on April 29th. Today, we'll focus on his upbringing, growing up in poverty on Kauai, misguidance, Andy Irons' influence, and then Dustin ultimately finding calm and purpose through the discipline of MMA. Next episode, we will focus more on his activism, the homeless problem in Kauai, political corruption, environmental impact of genetically modified agriculture, and Mark Zuckerberg's questionable acquisition of the Kuleana land. Again, lots to unpack here. And as I've been saying throughout this month, it's all made possible thanks to you. We are listener supported. And as a thank you to listeners who donate to our work in the month of April, we are going to be giving away a custom surfboard. Tim Pony Surfboards on Maui is donating the board. The winner will only incur the shipping cost. It is in honor of Earth Day, which is actually today, April 22nd. Jeff Timponi is building this board in what he calls Maui Leaf Light Construction. The materials that we choose are guided by their impact on society. So the workers, our neighbors, surfers, and the environment. They use EPS foam, which is recyclable, and then laminate it with a bio-based epoxy resin that, in addition to being bio-based, is actually safer to work with for the laminator as it doesn't give off volatile fumes. They use renewable cloth in place of fiberglass. Given that uh, hemp has historically been used in uh, not only clothing but structural, so in construction from buildings to automobiles, um, and it is a solid replacement for fiberglass. And then we also use our flax. It's a flax linen. So right now we use our flax mostly for our tail patches. And that's where you'll see the darker fabric on the back of our Maui Leaf Light surfboards. The, some of the materials we're using are, they actually sequester carbon because they came from plant matter, plants sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, whereas these other materials, they involve extraction processes, production, whatever kind of sub-production processes to end up with these materials like fiberglass, like resin. And each time along the way, it's using a certain amount of energy, certain amount, it's creating a certain amount of impact. We cannot compromise progress for perfection. So if it's just one or 2% better, it's one or 2% better. And it's the direction that we should be heading. So huge thanks to the Timponis for helping lead us in the right direction. I've linked to images of a facsimile of the board that they will build custom for you on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. And you can also learn more about Maui Leaf Light there, as well as make a donation to support our work and win that board. We recommend setting up a $5 recurring monthly donation via the PayPal button, but we truly appreciate any amount. You can also do it via Venmo at Surf Splendor. So thank you for that. And that brings us back to Dustin Barca. We recorded this at his home in Kilauea, Kauai. He was recovering from a back injury and had spent nearly two weeks in bed. He was only able to walk in the last three days prior to this chat, and he was kind of hobbling around the house. So we'll cover all of that stuff at the end of this episode. And uh, I'll just say, without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy part one of my conversation with Dustin Barca. I grew up in was uh, way less developed, way more localized, 
and uh, I don't know. I can kind of ask for a better upright up, upbringing other than being poor. But um, was there a limitation being poor at that time, or did it? Um, I feel like you would recognize it now because there's such a disparity. Well, between... I was just like being poor, and my friend. A lot of my friends were kind of rich. Okay. Just it was just kind of like jealous, you know, but. For us, like, even if we weren't, didn't really come from money, our friends did, and we pretty much lived at their houses, and so it's you know it's just it balanced us out, you know. Yeah. But Kauai back then, like, as far as like surfing and everything goes, there's fights every single day you go surfing. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. Like, people would show up with cameras. I'd watch my uncles just freaking break their cameras right on the freaking ground, and um. And they'd always tell us, you know, like, this is for you guys, you know? And so we were kind of, like, raised with that mentality to just always kind of, like, keep it that way for the next generation. Um, who was showing up with cameras? Was it actual industry people filming surfing uh, or like just Like a tourists? couple times, you know, there'd just be, like, that random dipshit who thought he was the golden goose to be able to, like, come take pictures or something that was just, like... Everybody knew the rules not to bring their cameras to Kauai, you know, but yeah. for some reason, like, somebody would try to show up to Kalihuai with a camera, and it'd just be, like, the worst decision they ever made. Right. Or they'd try to show up down to Hyena, to our spots, and be, like, taking pictures, and, they'd, you know, they'd either take their camera or break it. Yep. Or at least take the film out of it. So, um, Yeah. Like, as far as all of that has changed a bit, even though Kauai is still super localized and we don't still don't, like, really allow cameras here. But um, it's just changed a lot in the fact of, like, crowdedness and um, the kind of people that are moving here, you know? Like, it's become, like, a Hollywood hotspot, kind of. And so, like, property taxes have gone up. Um, it's really hard for local people to like hold their properties now like somebody like a local family who grew up in Hanalei who is generational in that town like their house has been there for generations it's hard for them to be, even be able to pay off their property taxes because um, Ryan whatever his name is from Uber moved in and bought a 40 million dollar house in Hanalei so that just jumps the property taxes up for everybody in the town so the sad thing is there's probably like three Hawaiian families left in Honolulu. And yeah, the rest crazy. of the people there are all like transient. Are they moving off island or just? Uh, um, a lot of them just move elsewhere on the island. But a lot of Hawaiians actually get pushed out of Hawaii because of the fact that they can't pay their property taxes and right. lose their properties. And that's why there's a big homeless problem. and um, It's crazy because like right now we're in this time of like consciousness where Hawaiian people are actually like learning their rights to their to their land so a lot of my friends are actually like occupying properties that they went they did their genealogy they found the paperwork to where there's things called kuleana lands and they're not like legally you're not allowed to sell a kuleana land title without all the family um, coming in and saying like um, giving you, granting you, like, the right to do so. It's like a board of directors. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, like, how um, Facebook... Um, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's property was all Kuleana properties. And so there's a huge dispute. And what he did is he bought out one of the guys. And so they did, like, a auction where all the families could come battle for their properties. And he paid one of the family members like million like gave him like a pot of like two million dollars to go to the auction and like anybody oh i'll do fifty thousand dollars he's like hundred thousand you know so he he bought he did like the most weaselly like thing ever outbid everybody outbid everybody all his online. family yeah but he got paid off like so there's always that one family member that's like willing to do the shadiest shit but um so a lot of my friends are actually occupying land even with houses on them and they're like hey you can 
and 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 taking them to court and and like challenge them because not a lot of people know this but hawaii is actually illegally a state it's illegally occupied for 127 years almost by um, the united states and basically the reason it's illegally occupied is because um there's never a treaty of annexation so the legal the the legal process of like um taking a country there's no treaty of annexation here therefore everything statehood everything has been illegal right so now people are challenging the state of hawaii to prove that they even have jurisdiction over like people right so my friends are going to court for their own properties and they're challenging titles because the titles are not um they're not like true titles right they could all be based on a false foundation anyways totally they're not like so they're so they're challenging people's properties on titles they're pr they're telling the bank prove that you have a like a true form of title because their titles are actually like bullshit yeah and so um so my friends with their own paperwork proving that the property is theirs they're like we don't want your house we want our land this is our family's land you can take your house you know we don't want we're not trying to steal your house we're not trying to steal your your property we're 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 taking back what is our families that's been stolen from us right and so the way that they that um, the united states helped create this like disconnection is through like the early 1900s they made it illegal for hawaiian people to to speak their language so by doing that it was a form of genocide of disconnecting them from like their history their paperwork all that um, all those connections to what their rights are as Kanaka Maoli which is which is like the native people yeah. so it's crazy because like for 50 or 60 years the language was illegal to speak in the schools or whatever Amazing. they'd get beat it like they'd get beat with paddles if they ever tried to speak Hawaiian in school and then the grandparents once it came to like our generation like their grandparents didn't speak hawaiian so none of the kids spoke hawaiian right so like my generation like the 30 38 and under is now the first generation who is schooled from like kindergarten in the language so now we have like this whole generation that is like educated on who they are where they come from the real history because of all that newspapers in the 1800s were all written in Hawaiian so nobody could really like translate what was really going on so like part of the schooling is going back into their newspapers and reading and so you get to like and the newspapers back then were kind of like how Facebook is now or something where everybody's kind of like writing in and writing what's going on in their communities and stuff interesting yeah so it's it's crazy because like they really gave them an insight on what actually really happened in the 18 like when the overthrow happened and how everything was so illegal yeah and then um now they're they're able to like do their genealogy now they're finding elodial titles and all these titles to their properties so it's crazy like now we're coming in this time where like we're in this time like serious time of consciousness for like hawaiian people where they're actually like they know who they are they know where they came from and they know what they have their rights to legally yeah it's a lot to unravel though i mean oh it's 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 like a, it's a it's it's like you know it's a it's a hard thing to like get your country back oh, but yeah. it's a lot easier to fight for your property back sure you know what i mean yeah all of those are going to be legislative decisions though at the you know government level oh totally. so politicians which we'll get to um is gonna who you elect is going to totally definitely matter. Um, back to that detail about breaking cameras. So the flip side of that is like, I agree with what your uncles are saying. We're doing this for you. Yeah. Cause they're thinking so that you can surf uncrowded waves. Well, they've seen but, what happened to the North shore, you know, well, exactly. But for you and your generation coming up who had aspirations for professional surfing, the flip side of it is that it limits your professional opportunities like the kids who grew up on the north shore can then get six-figure contracts when they're 16 years old and start traveling the world did you feel 
like there was any limit to your career ambitions uh, because you were growing up in Kauai? We did, you know, and we tried to film a little bit and we did a little bit of that growing up and it helped us get our foot in the door a little bit, but um, the reality of it was that like the best thing that some of my uncles told me is like, you want to be a pro surfer? Catch a 20 minute flight. The epicenter of surfing is 20 minutes away. We don't have to like sell out our, um, you know, our like special thing we have here to be famous. You know, if for fleeting, yeah, like fame. no matter yeah. what, being here isn't gonna make you that famous. Like for our generation, maybe now it could because everything's all about internet. You know, right? But for our generation. Even now, though, if you can't go and surf pipeline, you're you're, you're never gonna be like yeah, it's the still, guy. It's still the proving. Yeah, ground. yeah, it's yeah. always gonna be the proving ground. You know what I mean? So, what my uncles always told me is, bro, you're 20 minutes away. You want to be somebody? You want to be one of the best surfers in the world? Go surf pipeline. Yeah, Andy and Bruce. Yeah, did all it. of them. Yeah, yeah. we're just we're right behind them. You know, right. just so. We grew up with, I mean, I grew up with Andy and Bruce since I was six years old. Right. Those are like my heroes and my big brothers. Like, I'd freaking wait outside their house until they come out and be like, and follow them around like a little dog, you know? They, um, so your uncles obviously are right because even in your greatest aspirations of achieving three world titles or whatever, Andy, at that level, your goal is to still come back somewhere private and have a paradise to yourself. So you're only uh, you're already basically living your end goal, which is yeah. to live in paradise yeah. without a lot of people surfing it. So I'm glad that they had that foresight. But kind of on a broader level, did you feel the surf and did you feel any limitations from the surf industry just knowing that you are like them knowing you are from Kauai? Like I feel the Maui guys never quite achieved their full potential do yeah. you feel that way oh there's so many guys here that never left the island they're amazing surfers yeah you know? and even that 20 minute flight you're almost like why would i even do that 20 minute flight if the waves are pumping well, yeah it's just what's your aspirations you know what i mean so what were your aspirations my aspirations were to be just like andy and bruce okay yeah so that's what i did when i was 16 i dropped out of high school and moved to the north shore and um I was already like kind of like in a bad scene in high school. What was what was the scene? I was just in this like special ed system, which was like it wasn't like retards. It was like all the biggest punks in the school were in this like program, and basically all my friends in my class were all in and out of boys' home, and a lot of them were doing meth and freaking stuff from there. Like thirteen years old, like super super fucked up scene, and it wasn't like something that was like breeding you to be a better person it was just something that's like kind of like containing you until they get rid of you put all those kids together yeah, put them all together yeah it was like a quarantine for yeah. fucking all the biggest fuck-ups in the school or whatever and since i used to get in a bunch of fights when i was like in um <clears throat> you know i grew up without dad so i had all this built-up anger but i'd freaking i'd get in fights since elementary school all the time and i was like getting arrested already when i was like in fourth fifth sixth grade really yeah so i was like almost going to boys home and stuff and um i was probably like one charge away from like actually going to boys home so they put me in that special ed from like fourth grade or third grade and um so i was in that system all the way through high school till 10th grade and so i wanted to get out of that and because all my friends like danny fuller and all my best friends were all in these regular school and um, they wouldn't let me out of those classes and so they're like oh take this test and um, maybe we'll let you out of the classes so it was like an ADD test so I took this test it was just like tapping a thing when I seen the dot and then this guy tells me oh you're, you gotta take Ridlin if you wanna go in regular classes you gotta be on Ridlin and then me and my mom I looked up and like did my research on Ritalin. It's like working crystal meth in a pill, basically. It's a, it's an amphetamine. Yeah, and I'm just like, bruh, I'm not taking no freaking pill that makes that's like basically like smoking ice. Because a lot of kids would want the. They'd be like, sweet, give me that pill. Yeah, yeah, but like, 
I kind of like understood like a broader spectrum of what it is. Interesting. And so I just dropped out of high school. And I actually tried to go to this other private school here because there's like a lot of chicks. Like this wicked private school had all the hot chicks. And uh, they denied me from going there. And so I was like, fuck it. I ended up moving in with Braden Diaz on the North Shore because he was like kind of like a kind of like a um, older brother to me who like took care of me since I was young. And so I was like 16 living with like Braden Diaz, Kai Borg, Chava, a bunch of other like legends. And I was like the little punk kid that like I had to wash the dishes, cook dinner, like thousand push-ups a day. They made me fight like everybody that freaking, they made me like punch everybody who dropped in on anybody. I was just like, it was gnarly. It was like military school. It's what you needed though, right? It was. It, it turned me from a little kid to a man, you know, like I, I never had to do dishes. I never had to do shit growing up because I'd just go to my friend's parents' house and I never lived at home. Right. And uh, so it like gave me that structure, you know, like it gave me structure and gave me like showed me how to like work hard for what I wanted you know yeah and so at the time I did like I think who was it sponsored by sponsored by Rip Curl and so uh I was going to the NSSA um, nationals and for like two years I did it without a report card I was forging a report card oh my gosh at lowers yeah 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 lowers that's hilarious and so that year I like won the regionals I was like on fire my last year open men's I'm like fuck you win open men's you get the contract you get money and um, two days before the nationals I, I used to stay with um, I used to stay with um, Rusty Long's family and two days before the nationals um, the lady Janice calls me and she's like hey we found out about your little cheating thing just letting you know you're out of the nationals I was just like, I think I was staying with like John Robertson or somebody. Yeah. And, um, heartbreak. Heartbroken. And I was just like, I just got like, I think I got like third in the ISA Worlds in Brazil, won the regionals, won like almost everything all year. And I was just like, I'm winning the freaking nationals this year. I was like dead set. Like in my head, I was just like on. And, um, yeah, they freaking booted me, and then come to find out, Rusty Long's dad freaking ratted me out, him and Greg, and Greg ended up winning the open men's. Oh there. no! Yeah, so it's like yeah, freaking. I, mean, I was like so heartbroken, and like, I just from that point was kind of like a turning point for me. And then like a week later, I got or like two weeks later, I got dropped by Rip Curl. Was it related to that? Do you think it was related to that and? The guy said I didn't say hi to him at Lowers or something. Is this guy um, Damia Dorsey was the team manager? So oh, yeah. the story the story yeah. goes on. So I I come home. I start working construction and stuff for like two months. When you're 16 or 18? I was like about 17, yeah. about almost 18. I think I turned 18 like that winter. And uh, worked for two months, saved up like a couple grand, and then moved moved in with Braden again. And um, didn't have a sponsor. We'd run from Braden's house, lived by Kaiki, by Foodland over there. And we'd run, and Sunny had where um, Ruka House is now on the North Shore, like right off the wall. Sunny Garcia used to live in that house every year. We'd run to his house and lift weights. And so two nights before this happened, I was at the bar. I had like a fake ID, so I'd go to the bars and stuff with all the older guys. Um, the guy Damia comes up to me he's like hey what's up and I'm like oh, fuck you I fucking pushed him and like big trip and Strider grabbed me out of the bar he's like bro you're not even 21 what are you doing I'm like fuck that guy fucking he dropped me I have nothing now fuck him and so like uh, I think it was the next day we run to, to um, Sunny's or lifting weights I do my set I go to the end of the porch and there's the rip curl house and the guy's over there in the yard and I'm like what's up wave my hands at him like call him out and he's like flip me off and I just fucking ran straight over there like ran around to the path and kicked their door in and the guy wanted to scrap and I just gave the guy one 
punched down the pipe and like blew his lip out and he swung at me and then I just started flurrying him. But I ended up freaking beating the guy up in the yard at the Rip Curl house in front of all the bosses, the owners, Claw, all the Aussies, Mick Fanning, everybody, all the guys I used to stay with every year. I was super fucked up, but I was just so like, to me, I just they just like took everything from me, you know, at the time. I was 17, I was fucking, had goals. As, as comfortable you know they're they're paying me money and stuff and um it was just like i looked at all of them like wow look at all you guys driving your range rovers i'm here fucking eating ramen fuck you guys it's freaking went off and then you guys ripped me out of there braiding and all these guys ripped me out of there and like kind of blackballed myself from the whole surf industry for freaking like a couple years yeah so like in that time i was still like surfing every day back door off the wall like starting to surf pipe a lot and uh <clears throat> i had to like really like build up my reputation again because that like ruined me in the surf industry like blackballed me like nobody wanted to sponsor me did you feel like it was a mistake did you recognize it as an error or did it feel yeah. justified for me like even to this day i think i wouldn't be who i am without doing that yeah you know it's it's fucked up but it's not like i was it's not like I am now where I'm like a professional fighter and I went and like beat somebody up. You know right. I mean? Like I was just a fucking kid and this man had a trip and, and he, yeah. he wanted to fight and I freaking went over and kicked his ass. And I was like, you know, I feel sorry for the guy like that I he got beat up and all, but realistically it's like, it's a pretty legendary thing yeah. that happened. Well, also, you know? the other thing is, did he end up in the hospital? Nah, not exactly. even. He's got a bloody lip and a freaking sore body or whatever totally little, little sore face but so what's interesting though to me is that the it's easy to i don't know like had that had those things just been reported in a surf magazine let's say i'd read it in california and feel like you are um you're the problem child but when you tell the story it fills in a lot of the context to understand like the reason why you dropped out of school is because the school had failed you in a lot of ways by putting you in that program you're feeling like hey i want to actually go to this private school i would like an education you're you're not providing me the education then you're diagnosing me with this thing and insisting that i take the medication which i don't think is the right thing so every step of the way there's kind of a failure on the part of the adults that was a trip and the guy who actually tried to put me on ridland I seen him a few years back. I'm like, hey, Peter, you old Dustin Barker, nice to see you, man. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, Peter, I've been waiting to see you for a long time. You remember when you tried to put me on Ritalin? He's like, yeah, man. Oh. And he's like, already knew it was coming. I'm like, you know how much fucking people Ritalin has fucked their lives up? And I'm just like, if I would have listened to you, I would not have done anything I've done in my life. All my successes in my life probably would have been down the drain. I would never be the person I am today if I would have listened to you. And I just hope and pray for your sake that you haven't put that on too many freaking other people. To where you put them on this fucking shit and it ruined their life. Yeah. You know? And he's just like, man, I've made some mistakes and I'm sorry. You know, he, he felt really bad because he doesn't believe in that process anymore. I know it was an institutional problem. He was yeah. just—he was just following what yeah. what they like, the process that they um, gave him totally. to work with. You know what I mean? And at the time, it probably seemed like a wonder drug. If you worked in that field, yeah, and it made a kid go from like, yeah. or like being the punk in the class to like yeah. being like a zombie, right? You know, and that for a teacher that's getting like problems or like. Wow, I can I don't have to deal with this kid anymore. Drug him. Yeah. So I can see it from both sides, but it was definitely like the the system failed me, you know, like I didn't wanna be a freaking high school dropout. I wanted to like be able to do the nationals and all this shit and get a good good yeah. grades and be a good freaking you know, like to me I dropping out I was just like I'm a loser. You right. know, like but I just didn't let that affect me. I just kind of like put my eyes on my goal, which was to be a professional surfer. And, you know what I mean? And realistically, it's probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. Yeah. Like, um, well, let's get into that a little bit. Um, 
what was your next opportunity then? Oakley was Oakley the next one. My next opportunity back? after um, that was um, Counterculture. Oh really? I mean, I remember Counterculture as a brand. I actually went to. Um, I actually went to. There's that company Fab that used to be around. Don't fucked know. at birth. Don't remember it. It's fucked at birth and it was like ran by some drug kingpin guys from like Mexican mafia guy. So they did. They do a contest every year in Cabo. The fab contest. This is ringing a bell now that you say it. So they was the logo like old English. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, totally. exactly. So it's a bunch of like, I mean, I could probably say it now because it's like done. But it's like it was kind of like a gnarly meth dealer. I don't even know what they're involved in, but some drug shit. And so uh, it's like a super gangster thing. And uh, the guy like put on a contest in Cabo. And so. I went with Rusty Long, and uh, we ended up being on the same flight with Dino and Dino. I never met Dino in my life. And uh, so Dino, like, we ended up staying with him and surfing him every day, and he's all psyched on me. And then he got me sponsored by Counterculture because he was, like, one of their main guys at the time. Yeah. And from that point on, I started staying with Dino, and he became, like, a kind of a mentor to me and helped me, like, with a lot. And so from Counterculture... Dino ended up going and working for Oakley. Okay. And so that's how I got on Oakley. Gotcha. And so he kind of like gave me a chance. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, when were you introduced to MMA? I was actually, um, I started doing jiu-jitsu when I was 14 and kind of just like always loved it, but just didn't like stick with it. Okay. And um, was always kind of like around it and doing it sometimes and here in Kauai yeah and then Kyborg taught me how to box since I was 16 I got in like a fight and like knocked this guy out and he's like tomorrow I like told him I freaking like knock this guy out and he's like tomorrow meet me at the gym and so from that day on when I was like 16 I he taught me how to box I used to like go spar with like all these guys and just get like beat up pretty much and he'd, he'd hold mitts for me kind of started teaching me how to box so i've kind of been boxing and doing jiu-jitsu like since i was a kid and i kept boxing all the way um through my surfing career and everything and i was always like doing boxing so it was always kind of like my kind of like my sport for surfing and um yeah i lived lived like did, did that whole trip lived with Braden got sponsored by Oakley and then I was still like kind of living with Braden and I was super like kind of a, like a Daryl at the time when I was like 19 20 drinking all the time like partying getting paid too right so that getting paid help. so I was just like living the North Shore dream partying doing fucking drugs like drinking every day surfing every day but still like kind of like Daryl and um, my girlfriend was living on Oahu at the time. And um, I went from the North Shore after like partying for like three days, doing drugs, everything. And I was like 20 years old and she let me use her car. She lived like right next to the college. So she let me use her car. I was out there for like three days. I drove back super drunk, almost crashed, got to her house, woke up in the morning and it's pretty funny, like her, her her roommate clogged the toilet and she didn't know how to fix it. So I had to go like plunge the toilet. And then I didn't drink any water for like days. I was just like waking up drinking alcohol, like super daryled out and um, cramped up and had a crazy seizure, dehydration. So my girlfriend didn't know and she went going to school and she seen all the water running down her driveway. She's like, Okay, bye. And I'm like, didn't say anything. She's like, bye. And she looks under the fence and she sees like my feet up and the water running. She's like, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? And she like freaking runs in there and I'm like freaking foamed at the mouth, like pretty much dead almost. And uh, um, so I end up getting ambulance, woke up in the hospital, took two IVs of water and then um, 
pretty much from like that point on I had like one other episode like a week later and I went and drank again and I had like freaking anxiety attacks like gnarliest thing ever thought I was dying messed up like my nervous system and stuff from having a seizure and uh quit drinking never did drugs ever again in my life to this even till now really yeah never did coke or ecstasy or what um, any other drug except for smoking weed did they identify it as a seizure or did they think it was a drug overdose no it was a, it was a seizure from dehydration okay. i had like they no knew. i was like bone drive gotcha. water so like when they took me in the hospital i, I sucked in two ivs like like gotcha. that two bags and um so from that point on, I like came back to the North Shore that winter. I didn't even drink. My 21st birthday, I didn't even drink. I'd walk around with a big jug of water everywhere. It was like life-changing experience. And so like even to this day, I'm so thankful for that experience because to this day, like majority of my friends who I was best friends with are either dead from drugs, dead from suicide because of drugs, or freaking going to AA and NA meetings to this day, like every day of their lives. Right. I was the only one throughout my whole career of surfing from 20 years up that didn't wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't doing. I didn't get in the oxycontin when everybody got in the oxycontin because all my friends who did coke, they all started doing oxys and snorting oxycontin. Then they didn't even want to do coke; they just wanted to do oxys. And so, like everybody in the houses, were doing freaking oxycontin all before, after surfing all day long going in the bathroom together doing freaking oxys so that era of surfing um there was obviously a lot of money in the business i feel like that was just a public secret you know like everybody like you said everybody's doing it and your sponsors don't care right they weren't reprimanding you when you have that episode they know what's going on and they're actually hanging out in those houses too at one point we had a a doctor living at one of the houses, a homeopathic doctor who could write prescriptions, who was living at one of the houses, I'm not going to say which house, right. right at Pipeline, prescribing everybody bottles this big of OxyContin whenever they wanted. That's crazy. That guy ended up getting in trouble and going to jail. Really? Eventually, yeah. Which is why a lot of, um, I mean, this shroud of secrecy and like nobody talking about it and even facilitating the problem is why a lot of your friends ended the way that you just said that they ended. You yeah. Know? Like I was the only one who's like calling my friends on their shit because at that point I was already like from the time I was like 23, I already started training jujitsu all the time. I was like dedicating my life to it and I was dedicating my life to the tour. So I was like, Super focused. I still like to drink and have fun with my friends, but I never ever did drugs. Well, is that culture culture of drugs that exists in surfing that doesn't exist in M- MMA? Not really. I mean, there's a lot of people who do like blow and stuff in MMA, MMA and then when they go party and stuff. But the majority of like world class MMA fighters are pretty. They they live a pretty clean lifestyle because at this point, like. MMA is the most physically demanding sport in the world. And um, if you want to be at like that higher echelon in that sport, you have to be at like firing at all cylinders. You know what I mean? You can't be, you can't be putting poison in your body. Right. You know, and I'm lucky that I've gotten to the level I have with like drinking and doing stuff like that. Like I don't drink when I'm in my camps or anything, but I mean, a lot of people do what I do, but I mean, I'm at like, you know, the highest level of the sport at, at pretty much, you know, I'm in Bellator. Bellator is like the second biggest organization in the world. And, um, you know, I just don't see anybody being like a world champion, being a freaking somebody who does like Oxycontin or. Which, by the way, you can't in surfing now either. And it does happen. Like you see, world champions diminish in their careers, and come to find out that they were, you know, partying a lot right. and whatnot. Right. And that's why they started losing fights. And that's why. And I know some of them, you know, yeah. really good. And so that's that's where you'll see that in MMA. Yeah. 
is that when somebody's career starts going from the top to the bottom real quick, they're obviously doing something in their life that that is like, you see somebody like George St. Pierre, who was a champion for however long, never really lost. And the reason he was that is because of his lifestyle. And that's why he beat almost all those guys he beat. It's not because he was that much better. It was more because of his, how... Um, Other guys will beat themselves. Yeah. Like, John Jones will beat himself. Yeah, but John Jones even... John Jones is a freak. I know, but... John Jones is the only guy in MMA who's the... He's the best fighter in the world. Who freaking does coke. Like, he's admitted to doing coke that's the week point. of his fight. He'll be the guy who beats himself because yeah. nobody else can beat him. Yeah, 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 exactly, guys. exactly. So that's one example of, like, just, like, scratching his, like, ability, like, his limits of, like, what he could be. You know what I mean? Totally. But well, he's, that's a, that's a freak talent right there. Surfing, though, we're at the point now where you can't do recreational drug use and exist at the highest levels of the sport anymore because it's that athletic. Like Idolo, the guys winning actual events are... All the guys at the top of the, of the tour, they barely even drink. Right. They barely even have a beer. Right. Super dedicated. And that's what surfing... Surfing's turning into a sport more mm -hmm. than like a lifestyle sport. Right. You know what I mean? And it's sad because the industry is dying at the same time because we're losing that marketability kind of within the sport, I think. The culture itself. Yeah, the culture is just dying. It's crazy to see, like, to, to see it co go to where we were. Like, I was getting paid $200,000 a year when I was on tour, you know? And now there's majority of everybody on tour is barely even sponsored. Like Seabass ain't even sponsored. I know, it's And insane. he's like triple crown champion, one of the best surfers in the world. You know, he just fell off tour. But, I mean, he's just like somebody who's so marketable who just can't get support. I, I feel like that era that you were thriving in also wasn't healthy in a lot of ways too, though, you know? Totally. Like, it was way too fat and loose. And there wasn't a return on those investments, to be honest. Like, those brands, it's hard to say that that's an equitable purchase for them totally to have a bunch of team riders in that kind of middle range that they're paying even when i when i made the tour and i was on the ct like that was like the most miserable year of my life was, was traveling really? by myself and i pretty much drank the whole time i was not like focused and i told the guys from oakley i'm like if you guys want to see me do good on this tour like because after like a few contests i was like okay everybody who's on the top 10 has somebody helping them their sponsors are helping them get their hotels their cars their they set everything up for them and they have like a coach with them helping them and that's how fanning and all these guys were at the top of course and they didn't want to do that for me and at that point i kind of like just kind of like gave up on myself because i was traveling by myself so stressed out left my new son you know my kid was like one years old at the time couldn't it, i got to bring them a couple places but i was always by myself staying by myself driving i drove from france to portugal by myself twice like france spain portugal all by myself like so miserable never been that miserable in my life i just drink the whole time every day drinking and uh didn't really have like any close friends on tour. The only guy I'd hang with is Aki when he'd be at like a Billabong contest and I'd hang with him pretty much every day. Um, considering that that was your whole life's ambition was to make that tour, what do you think that misery was about? <clears throat> well, Andy and Bruce dropped off of the tour the year I made the tour. And the, my whole like goal in life was to fucking get on tour and beat them. So I was like, my like goal in life guaranteed i was gonna stay with them guaranteed i was gonna because you know they're freaking my best friends and um andy fucking was super bummed because like he he like set up fred pataccia roy powers all these guys with like where to stay blah 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 took him under his wing kind of like kind of showed them the way 
and then he wasn't there to do that for me he was like super bummed and like apologetic about it but um yeah i was like fuck those were like like the whole my whole life that's what i wanted to be i wanted to be on tour and right. fucking stay with them and battle them and fucking you know take them out that was like my life goal and once they were in there i was just like fuck this sucks like what would you have done differently i mean you made it what you worked for was still there which was the tour and all the opportunity yeah what would you have done different in hindsight what i would have done differently i would have been i would have got a financial advisor for my money i would have probably um spent my own money on like i would have invested in myself with like people to help me be the best i could be you know and that's kind of where i freaking blew it because i was just instead of investing in myself i was coming home and taking everybody out to the restaurant everybody out to the bar and i'd take five friends with me on a trip somewhere and like it was fun i wouldn't take it back but it wasn't the smartest way to to uh to spend freaking two hundred thousand dollars a year you know? well you also think it's gonna continue probably yeah you think you it's know? gonna last forever i think you you're know? always gonna earn more money each and, year and my sponsor that. oakley was such like a jock company that they didn't see like the marketability in like my lifestyle other than being on tour right so like when i when i uh you know i, I when i dropped off tour i basically just gave up and was fucking was like i didn't really try the last few contests i was just like get me the fuck out of here um when you say that you gave up were you i know you're giving up on the ct were you giving up the dream of pro surfing or did you think because at that time you could still make a living as a free surfer. yeah yeah i just i just kind of just was so burnt out from just traveling by myself and just feeling all that that like anger towards the tour towards other guys from hawaii that didn't like invite me to stay with them or you know what i mean i was just like Bro, fuck this fucking sport fuck this tour fuck this whole scene fuck all those people i held a lot of like resentment you know because like all the guys from hawaii like fred patachia keiko all these guys would stay together and i'd be staying like over here i'd hang out with them and like eat dinner with them sometimes and whatnot but majority like they would never be like oh we're gonna stay at this hotel get a room over here like i didn't know where to stay i didn't know shit and I didn't, I was kind of like, sh nobody was helping me get hotels anywhere I went. So it was just kind of like, yeah, I didn't, I was kind of just on my own trip and it sucked. And, um, you know, certain guys like reached out to me, like, da uh, like Damien Hartman. And, I mean, da Damien and CJ Hobgood. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were like, Barca, you can, you can fucking hang with us. But it's just kind of like, you know, it wasn't really my crew. I love those guys. They're super cool guys, but it just wasn't like, just didn't fit in in either. Yeah. Room. Yeah. It yeah. just wasn't my kind of crew you know like i was just so and I, i'm just kind of like the kind of person that just hangs with my kind of crew and and um i appreciate those guys to this day for that they're just they're like the only ones who actually reached out to me and were like stay with stay with us if you want you they're know? really thoughtful guys yeah they are they're freaking world-class humans yeah so yeah like after that i just thought ah, i can get away with just being a free surfer and like my whole life, I wanted to be an MMA fighter. I always knew it was around those kind of people. Kaibor was a jiu-jitsu black belt. He was like my freaking mentor and big brother. And I was always like, I want to be a black belt. I want to freaking fight MMA. But I was always like scared to. So I started training a lot like jiu-jitsu from the moment. I was training all like a lot when I was on tour. But from the... The second the pipe master was over, my life went straight like jujitsu. Really, we two you, times a day. Like you said, you were afraid. Were you afraid of the workload? I was commitment? afraid of just failure. Okay, that's what I was afraid of. And I've always been like that. Like even with surfing, like I could have put everything into surfing, but I think I was more scared to fail while trying my hardest or something, and it was easier to like give up. You know what I mean? Now I do I'm, know what you now mean. Now I'm older and I'm like, no way more, and I know psychology and i know all these things from fighting so much and i know how freaking strong the mind is and when it comes to competition you can you can like it's easier to quit and say oh i just didn't uh, 
and keep a little blame everything intact. on everybody like i blame everything on all these guys like i was just kind of like doing yeah but at the end of the day it was me like i'm the one who fucking gave up on myself because it was easier to to give up than to put everything into it and fail right you know what i mean and so i always kind of had that throughout my whole life and um so i was training super hard and fucking um you know i had like trips with andy like always like i was the only one who kind of like told him like bro what the fuck are you doing like you know we've had a few like kind of blowouts and um like the year before he died i like kind of like i told blair marlin who's his manager i'm like bro what the fuck why don't you fucking kind of like cornered him i was like fuck why don't you fucking help andy like why are you fucking what you're just collecting your fucking checks like kind of went off on him and then he told andy like that i tried to fight him i didn't try to fight him i just kind of like told him straight and um andy like me and andy almost got in a fight and then kind of didn't talk that much and then my friend came over to like who was a photographer came over here and he was just like staying with me it wasn't even like shooting or anything and then Andy like fucking called me all drunk on like New Year's Eve he was like bro you fucking think you're fucking you think you're the guy bro you fucking bring a photographer over here fucking bro I fucking pawn your friend bro like that was super like bipolar he's bipolar he left me this bipolar message. I'm like, bro, you know what? Fuck this fucking guy. Like, I'm not even talking to him anymore. And so me and him didn't talk for like fucking eight months or six months. Only time I ever talked to him, he won the the contest. And uh, the last contest he won was in Tahiti. It was like comeback win contest. He was a, he was a uh, wild card and won the contest. That's the last contest he won. And it was pumping, right? It was actually small. Oh, was it? The finals was small. Okay. But he won. And uh, I text him all fucking proud. Good job. So proud of you. And then we still never talked. And then he came home from that. And like um, right before he passed away was our one of our best friend's weddings. And we all hung out all week and freaking hung out. And we surfed and we freaking drank beers. And we were all fucking made up. Buried Apologize, yeah, but bury the hatchet. And uh <clears throat> yeah, the day fucking he left to go to Puerto Rico, we were all hanging out at Pine Trees all the way till he went to the airport. And yeah, everything happened, he passed away and fucking that was like the biggest like blow I've ever had in my life. Yeah. We've never never lost like we've lost people we know. Mm-hmm. We've never lost like family, you know. Well and such an iconic figure he's like oh he was he's un he's impenetrable you know like, yeah he was like so many things to me he wasn't just like my friend he wasn't he was like my hero my friend my big brother you know so i lost like three people at once and i right. took it hard but if i can drink for two weeks straight at pine trees made this camp everybody who came to for the funeral like for the for two weeks ahead i just cooked for them me and my uncle bobo and we just kind of like made this camp because my uncle Bobo told me like his grandpa, he was like my, my he kind of like adopted me as his son. He was like the heart and soul of Hanole. He passed away a few years ago, but he told me when his grandfather died, they partied for two weeks straight and fucking to celebrate his life. He told me that like before. So when Andy passed away, I like made a point, yeah, uncle, we're going to party for two weeks straight, just like they did for your grandpa, you know, like. Because his grandpa was like the king of Hanalea. And so, yeah, I freaking partied. Took it so hard. Like, almost killed myself. And um, ended up getting like, um, what's it called? Fucking got like an infection in my esophagus. And got ulcers in my stomach. All from like drinking so much. Drink like whiskey and beer every day. Like for two weeks. And, uh, but after that I was pretty fucking broken like for like a couple months and then like I couldn't even shit or take a shower or anything without breakdown crying and uh, somehow freaking Andy came to me in a dream it was the craziest experience of my life and it was like he was like a ball of light and we're like in the cloud is the weirdest thing ever and it was like him like I 
when I was looking at him, it was him, but he was like a, like a, like a light, like a, it was almost like he was like a hologram. Okay. But he was like a ball of light. And he's like, brah, don't worry about me. I'm in a good place. Brah, don't worry. We'll all be again to, uh, we'll, we're all going to be together again someday. He's all, I love you, brah, don't worry about me. Then he got like, he got sucked away. It's so cliche, but he got like sucked away in this light. And I was like, I seen the light like people talk about when they die or something. And so I like, I seen that. It was like the craziest experience of my life. Like, and uh, from that point on, I was like, I'm not scared to die. I'm not scared to fucking put everything I have into. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight in the name of fucking Andy. And so like, from that point on, I started like fucking really like putting my life in the fucking MMA. So that was at the end of the two week bender of drinking and stuff? Uh, that was like, I, we did that and then I had to be on medication for a while and I was like fucked up for another like month and a half or something and that happened after like within like two months of them dying. Okay. And it and culminates so, with that dream. Yeah. And so like that made me like, I realized in what he told me that there is fucking we do go somewhere good you know what i mean after we die and i wasn't scared to die because there's nothing after you know what i right. mean and so i was like always kind of like scared to put everything i have into things because man what if i die what if you know what i mean so like that took away that like what if feeling yeah, in my life and from that point on i just became the man i am today like fucking all the gmo marches i did like speaking up speaking up in front of crowds like all the things I never would have done before yeah all those things I've done since then fight the fighting everything has all come from the freaking that one dream that I have that freaking made me like realize that fucking crap don't be scared to do anything don't be scared to die don't be scared to fucking live because you're scared everybody like not everybody but a lot of people are scared to actually live their life like to the fullest because they're scared to die they, they don't live and do the dream things they want to do or things that like their conscience telling me hey you should do something about that. that's fucked up and they're like oh, that's scary like, you know what i mean you don't want to fail when you're trying your hardest it's hard to be vulnerable dude totally and you could have it all Everything that Dustin and I discussed is available for your viewing on surfsplendorpodcast.com, along with footage of him surfing and fighting in Bellator. Fitness and diet has come up a lot recently um, in episodes of the show, and I mentioned in the introduction that Dustin was actually recovering from a back injury when we recorded this. So he and I did discuss that. It was while he was eating lunch in between bites of salad, uh, but I did have the mics on. So I think that you might find some interest in his injury experience and recovery. So I'll let the show play out with that portion of the conversation, despite eating while we're chatting. And uh, But before I do, I'll remind you that we are, of course, listener-supported. And if you'd like to support our work here, you can do it on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate, where there is a PayPal link or Venmo at Surfsplendor. A donation of any size will get you entered to win that Maui Leaf Light surfboard built by Jeff Timponi. We'll pick just one name from those donors randomly on May 1st, and you'll only incur the shipping cost. But Jeff Timponi will build that board to your exact specifications and needs for wherever you surf. Surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate is where you can do it and see it. Dustin Barca shares much more in part two of this conversation, including the story of his run for mayor in 2014 and corruption that's recently taken place on their city council that has resulted in a federal indictment. He also discusses how big agricultural companies genetically testing on Kauai have sown seeds of discontent among local families. And we discuss Dustin's transition into parenthood 
and what he hopes for his children who are now being raised on Kauai. That episode drops Wednesday, April 29th. So I'll leave you with this last bit of our conversation. This is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to stay six feet away from everyone so that we can expedite our efforts to get back into the water. I'll see you next week. I would find a way. And then so I got a massage from this random girl. Like I always get massage from one lady and she couldn't see me. And then this girl did my kickboxing class and she's like, oh, your back's hurt. I'll, I'll massage you. Massaged me for like an hour. When I got off the table, I was like freaking paralyzed. Tried to step down and just went, ah! Worst pain of my life. So at this point, it's been two weeks to the day. I've only been walking like the last three days. What uh, what type of massage massage was she doing? Was it really rigorous? It was just kind of like an average deep tissue massage, but I think she like went into my psoas. She was like pulling on my psoas and stuff. I think that activated my... Um, sciatic nerve really bad and so my whole sciatic nerve like for the last two weeks i couldn't sleep i've been sleeping sitting up with my knees to my chest i cannot lay down any which way couldn't walk couldn't lay on my back couldn't lay on my sides couldn't lay on my stomach so i sat laid slept on the couch sitting up in the corner of the couch with like pillows behind me knees to my chest and just aching like the worst pain of my life all night obviously you do a lot of physical activity, but you're also super fit. So what could you have done to avoid it? Is there anything you could have done to avoid it? To avoid the injury? Yeah. Waited for my normal masseuse. <laughs> but I mean, prior to that, even like you did it in the water initially. That's when you first activated it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the thing is like, I'm a super, like super athlete or whatever. And I'm a professional in two different sports and whatnot, but I'm not the smartest person at drinking water or taking supplements or anything so it's simple as drinking water yeah like me I just everything I do is kind of just off my natural talent you know I'm never really that like on it with like diet drinking water like I drink water when I think I need to drink water but I'm not somebody who drinks like a fucking gallon of water a day or whatever you're supposed to drink like a huge bottle of water a day right I don't do that I drink like only when I work out I really drink water and then when I'm not getting ready for a fight, I'm usually like, I'll work out and I'll go get a beer after. Right. And I don't even really drink any water. And so it's just being unprofessional in that way. And it really bit me in the ass this time. Do you stretch before you surf? Never. Never stretch before I surf. How old are you? 38, I just turned. Me, yeah, me too. Uh That'll make you rethink things. So, yeah. I mean, especially if, if you made it this far without really sustaining a real injury, then you're actually doing pretty good. Yeah, like, I've ne- I mean, surfing, I've hurt my back, like, a bunch. Yeah. But it's always something that's just, like, a couple chiropractor visits away. Yeah. Um, all my other injuries has pretty much been from jujitsu. Yeah. So, surfing, I'm, like, I'm naturally just, like, a, I surf stiff. Like, that's how my... I just always surf. Like, I've never been, like, somebody who had to stretch to surf. It's like, I go out there, I catch a couple waves, and then I'm like, I'm on. I'm ready to break it. Right. You know what I mean? That's what you think, but... Yeah, but now I'm you like... You can get injured doing that. Even uh, if you surf okay. But even this yourself. lady who I just went to who really helped me today, and the guy I'm starting to work with, I'm starting to work with this guy, Nadi Aguilar, who's, like, world-renowned. He, he does this thing called functional patterns, and it's, like, the future of strength conditioning or even taking everybody away from like yoga hmm. crossfit all these things I mean, or even people who are doing physical therapy this guy has created this thing called functional patterns to where he's taking people and it's basically just movements instead of like doing kettlebells where you're like fighting the weight he's doing movements where he like flows with the weight so it's like it's actually um, dis- like redesigning your body to align with itself. And it's like, so everything he does from like running to, he doesn't believe in stretching. And it's like all these fighters, Olympians, um, like a lot of the best boxers in the world, all these guys are turning into 
functional patterns. Okay. And so this lady I just went to is like, she's like, she says she teaches yoga, she's, but she's anti-yoga. She does like this kind of like a few yoga stretches, but with this certain breathing. And it's just like functional patterns. She's doing just functional patterns that are just like kind of like natural things, but using the right breath and just moving the right way and being like conscious of the movements of, of like your posture and your breathing. Yeah. And so um, for me, like <clears throat> for now on, I'm, I'm like dedicating myself to this. Yeah. Does it make you rethink diet too? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I always eat super healthy. But I do drink a lot of beer. Yeah. And I don't drink like a 12-pack of beer or nothing, but I like to have like a beer at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Even if I work out, I'll go to the store and buy like one beer. Mm-hmm. But you, you mix that in with not drinking enough water. Yep. And it's a bad combination, you know. Totally. Um, and you said you eat healthy. In terms of diet, you eat sugar? Do you eat dairy? I don't eat sugar. I don't eat dairy. Okay. What about grains? Uh, most of our, like me and my kids, we're all on pretty much like, like gluten-free when we're at home. Okay. Uh-huh. What about red meat? I eat red meat maybe twice a week. Okay. But I do buy a cow every like three years. And I have a huge freezer outside. And my friends are ranchers here. So I'll drop it off at the butcher. And then I pick up boxes of, and I just vacuum seal it and I pack like three years worth of meat. Okay. And it's all grass fed here from Kauai. That's what I was going to ask was the sourcing of it. Because it's like that almost matters to me more now than anything else. I don't, I don't, eat, I don't eat like your um, factory raised beef. Yeah. I won't eat it. Right. And I haven't done it for like 10 years. Good for you. Yeah. The fact that you even have access to other options is actually better than a lot of the world or certainly a lot of the u.s you know like in southern california we have we don't have that kind of access no and i'm so blessed because when i like in between i did i wasn't buying cow i bought one ate all and i didn't buy one for a couple years and i probably spent like at least a thousand dollars a year on meat because i'm buying freaking organic grass-fed Kauai steaks mm-hmm. that are like 25 bucks for one little t-bone yep and it's it's a fucked up like so you save a ton of money by buying i'll buy a cow. whole cow broken down yeah for 800 dollars, and oh, it lasts me like three years that's crazy yeah is the meat at the end of the three years out of the freezer worse than the beginning no it's totally the same really no freezer whatever no freezer brand vacuum seal I, I usually vac i vacuum seal like the majority of it got it so it's pretty. It's it's holds its it's holds its like um, just holds itself pretty well. Okay. Um, let's backtrack.